Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, J.C. DeSwan, the author of uh, just published Seeking Virtue in Finance, Contributing to Society in a Conflicted Industry, a book that just came out with Cambridge. J.C. DeSwan is a a partner at a New York investment firm, and he also teaches uh, at Princeton. J.C., thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So the title of your book is is Ambitious, Seeking Virtue in Finance. I, most people, even listeners of New Books in Finance, might be taken uh, a little bit aback by that. That's great. That's why I'm delighted to have you on the show. Tell me what led you to a, such an ambitious topic. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I, I divide my time between uh, teaching and, and working as an investment professional. And my initial angle into the investment industry was really through the conceptual lens of public policy and economic development, because that's what I studied as a graduate student. And I was particularly interested in this idea of finance as a tool for development and as a way to foster prosperity. And I eventually uh, started teaching about 12 years ago uh, Princeton and created a couple courses and, and one in particular that was uh, meant to address all of these issues. And what I found repeatedly over the years is that many of my students are, are keen to work in finance, but they're concerned about being corrupted the minute they walk into their first job on Wall Street. And so I, I created this course on ethics and finance. And Halfway through the first semester I taught it, um, one student asked me, why is it that um, it's almost always the case that we, we put, that we talk about unethical behavior? Why don't we talk about praiseworthy decisions and inspiring people? And I thought, of course, she was completely right. And so I, I looked for literature on role models in the industry, and, and I couldn't find it. So I, I decided to, to write the book. And, and my approach was to set out to identify remarkable individuals who essentially counter the narrative of badly behaving, self-serving finance professionals. But to be clear, what I looked for were not people that were altruistic in any way. Uh, but people that uh, were self-interested, ambitious, um, often successful, uh, each in their own way, uh, but who managed to balance their self-interest with the collective interest, despite the uh, very significant pressure to conform to industry norms. Um, And from that study, so I I spent uh, a few years researching and interviewing a lot of people in the industry. And I ended up uh, focusing on about 60 individuals and firms. And and what I did was to tease out patterns 
of what virtuous behavior in finance might look like and and what the pillars of a virtuous career might be. And I, I should let the, the audience know that the, the book is, is not very long. It, it is filled with these vignettes about individuals who are both self-interested, but also not so self-interested uh, to the extent of other virtues that you're trying to achieve. So it, it is very re- readable, a combination of kind of uh, mini biographies, uh, as well as the structure, as you said, you want to kind of highlight how you boil down these 60 stories into four types of behavior that you think are achievable, uh, despite the, uh, as you put it, a conflicted industry. And that's, that's uh, putting it mildly. Sure. And so out of the study of these, uh, these individuals and these firms, I, I teased out a, essentially a framework that has four pillars of, of what I what uh, would be virtuous behavior in the industry. And, and the first pillar is, is really about serving your client with your client's interest in mind. So faithfully serving your client, even when no one is looking. And of course, it's often the case that uh, no one is looking in finance because uh, finance tends to be complicated and opaque and so on. So that's the first one. And I would argue that's the most important one in the hierarchy because that's your professional mandate. Um, in finance, we serve clients, we're intermediaries. And so that should be the most important. The second pillar is the one that I think warrants more attention in the industry. Uh, because we we often don't think about it. And it's this idea that, and in some ways, I think of it as a conundrum in the sense that you can serve your customers well and fulfill your primary mandate, customer mandate. And in, in serving them well, you, um, you will do well for yourself. Uh, but you could serve them well by extracting value from others. And it could be other stakeholders. It could be uh, any of, of uh, uh, several types of stakeholders, and and so that's the that's an important one that I think uh, needs more uh, attention. That is a zero sum important. game versus uh, zero sum game versus not a zero sum game. Yes, exactly. Creation. Uh, yes, and the assumption is that most people, most of the time for better or for worse, and probably for worse, are engaged in a, a zero-sum activity. You're pointing out that that's not obligatory, that there are win-wins. Uh, they may be harder to find, but there are opportunities in finance to create create yes. social and wealth. It, yes. And in fact, I'm not sure I would put it that harshly in the sense that I, I would guess that most of the industry is actually creating value. Uh, for society as a whole. And, and it's, a, it's actually an important point here is that my underlying premise here and my fundamental belief is that finance is a force for good. And, um, you know, I mean, it's central to the way an economy works. It has many indirect positive effects on the economy. And there's been an enormous amount of research since the 1990s showing that. But it's also the case that because of a combination of structural changes that have taken place on uh, Wall Street since the early 70s and subsequent behavioral changes, uh, the industry appears to have swayed away from its client-serving mission and its singular focus on supporting the real economy. I want to, I want to get away from uh, uh, from the big picture to one specific sure. because you, you came upon something very specific there, which I think I understand, or I'm, I'm going to go there. 
uh, and it's almost a technical detail, but people won't think about it. It's really important. And I, th- I assume what you're referring to in the 1970s is the end of partnerships in favor of publicly traded yes. entities. And that uh, while that is now the norm, the rush to be uh, publicly traded among professional service corporations, which is how I view whether it's an investment bank or uh, consulting firms and so forth, accounting firms, that when they were partnerships, and very few people you know, uh, under a certain age remember when all of the accounting firms and professional service firms and consulting firms and investment banks were just partnerships, that apparently they were very different entities than they have become now. And I think that's that's worth going going down that rabbit hole a little bit because I think most listeners sure. have not thought about that. Yes, I mean the you know the first bank DLJ decided to go public in the early 1970s, and um, and little by little most of the large investment banks ended up uh, going public uh, with uh, Goldman Sachs uh, doing so in 1998, and um, and it changed the dynamics. Prof- Profoundly on on Wall Street, and and of course, if you're a partnership, um, your your entire wealth is on the line, and uh, as a result, you end up uh, behaving more conservatively because it's essentially your money that you're. You, we at should risk. we should explain that again for certain people who uh, the, the nature of a partnership as opposed to sort of an LLC. In an LLC, you set it so that you have uh, liability up to the amount of the money that you put into a business, but no more than that. And the LLC can fail and there's no claim against your personal assets. In a partnership, that is not the case. And partners of businesses are often called upon to put extra money into the business in difficult times. And in theory, it's uh, limitless. And that apparently you're I'm putting words in your mouth, correct me if I'm wrong, makes the partners behave in a different manner than they might otherwise, and a better manner is is what I'm concluding from your yes. the way you and, position that. Yes, and, and there are fascinating studies uh, that show the impact on on uh, CEO behavior. And and you see like the you know, perhaps the the most uh, significant change is just the amount of leverage. That banks have had have uh, uh, have had over the years, you see the uh, the leverage going up dramatically uh, over the next like 20, 20, uh, 20, 30 years, and you also see CEO compensation going up dramatically as their compensation is tied to the share price. But where the you know the the biggest challenge uh, ends up being the fact that. There's um, there's an inherent conflict of interest, and it's one that, of course, we can live with and that we've learned to live with. But uh, in a, an environment where there is so much pressure to perform from shareholders, if you're publicly listed and uh, you are um, uh, coming out with your earnings and your financial performance on a quarterly basis, and and there's tension between that pressure to perform uh, on a quarterly basis and the long-term solicitous handling of customer relationships that is the hallmark of longer-term businesses and and client businesses. And that's where you've seen a lot of friction partner uh, in, uh, in these banks over the years. And it's certainly... I think uh, created some of the problems that we've seen in recent years, whether it's you know through the increased leverage or, or through the the shorter term horizons 
that these banks uh, uh, have have had to have by default. So is it a conflict of interest or is it just an agency cost? If I want to invest in a company and I did not create the company and I do not have the resources to buy the company outright, I have to acknowledge that I'm going to face an agency cost. I buy shares of the company. I vote for the directors. The directors appoint the CEO. The CEO appoints the executive executives and the executives manage the business. And I, I realistically have to acknowledge that there are agency costs at every point along there. It's an imperfect system. But if I want to have an ownership stake in said business, I have to deal with it. And that is the the beauty right. of the, the public market. So I'm more at peace, perhaps, with the fact that uh, in order to get access to certain types of companies uh, that I did not create and cannot buy in their entirety, I have to put up with a lot of <laughs> yeah. a lot of potential problems. Yeah. And, and, you know, the point is that it's not something that we should bemoan. Uh, it's more of a fact that we should uh, be aware of and, and try to address. But it, it, I, I don't think anyone would argue that uh, these companies should be, go back to becoming partnerships. And there are valid reasons why this decided to uh, list publicly. But the thing is, it's it's really hard to get that balance right of how to compensate uh, the agents and how to ensure that the agents uh, work for the good of the shareholders and 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 all stakeholders in in a way that uh, doesn't create uh, problems uh, by you know in having them entirely focused on short-term performance for instance as the audience will know I work in, in investments as well and have written in the past on short termism and quarterly reporting is a sort of a disaster. But we are, we're not here to discuss that today, nor can we change it immediately. I want to make sure we hit the highlights, though, of, of your framework. Customers first uh, is, yes. is the first point. Social wealth creation, we hit. Uh, the, the third and the fourth, humanistic leadership and engaged. To the yeah. Do you want to say a word or two? Sure. And so the third one in the hierarchy is, is lower because now we're looking inside the organization. And it occurred to me as I was interviewing all these remarkable individuals that it's also important to think of not only uh, your your customers, not only um, all the other stakeholders, but but also your colleagues and your employees. And so this is about treating your your employees and your colleagues with dignity, and also uh, preventing discrimination. And so that also includes uh, a promoting diversity in your firm and in the industry. So, so that's the third pillar. And then the fourth pillar, which is in some ways to me is, is almost the most interesting because that's where you, see, you can find really uh, fascinating stories, is this idea that finance is, um, provides you a skill set that ends up being very, very versatile. And, uh, and there are lots of ways for finance professionals to take advantage of their skill set, to take advantage of the networks that they've created to, um, to help society outside of their jobs. And, and sometimes it's in parallel to their jobs. Sometimes it's after they leave their, their jobs in the finance industry. And so I wanted to explore specifically to uh, how they did that to broaden the definition of how a finance professional could be virtuous by also showing that it's not just what they do on the job, but it's also what they do outside of the job with what they've taken uh, and learned from the finance industry. 
and you characterize this as engaged citizenship is, is yes. kind of the title for that. Yes. Uh, and so you, you have these, four, you know, having all these discussions and distilled what is the, uh, I wouldn't say, say the ideal, but an ideal form of behavior. You do then bring together a number of stories and examples and uh, of how these can play out, customer first, social wealth creation, humanistic leadership, engaged citizenship. And there are many vignettes. They're quite interesting. Uh, you want to you know, tease, tease the audience with a, a couple in each of those four points that uh, sure. you know, drive, the, drive what, the, how, what customers first and, and the other points look like in practice. Sure. Yeah. So, so there are a lot of them, but let, let me mention, for instance, I mean, the first pillar is uh, serving your customers faithfully. I was particularly interested in, um, in finding folks in the investment industry uh, in large part, because that that's, that's where I am. And, uh, and also, frankly, I, I approached this with a lot of humility uh, and it was a, a lot, a lot of this project was also for me to learn and understand this, not just for my students and for potential readers. And uh, so I, I was keen to find examples in the hedge fund industry. And what was fascinating about it is it was incredibly hard to find. I remember sitting down with uh, the heads of uh, two of the largest uh, prime brokerage uh, departments in, in New York and asking them, who is a fiduciary leader uh, in in the industry and they drew complete blanks and it was interesting because they they i could tell they were keen to come up with names and that they wanted to follow up and and it was just like they they couldn't come up with any name and i i found this guy uh who coincidentally turns out to be located in princeton uh but complete coincidence and and i had him come to talk in in my class uh some like eight years ago and I thought he was very interesting. He's a he's a trader that came out of a legendary fixed income arbitrage group at Solomon Brothers in the 1980s. And but he he wasn't comfortable with the culture. It was a very sharp elbowed culture, as it's you know it's been very well documented. Um, and so he left, and he and his partner, who was also in that group, um, so Andy Okun and and Stephen Majdaluski. They they went out to create their own hedge fund. But what's interesting about their approach is that typically when you create a hedge fund, you go to one of the main uh, law firms that that create terms uh, for that creates you know they create the the main documents, the PPM and and so on, and and there are boilerplate uh, terms that you know, frankly typically skew more you know in favor of uh, of the fund manager. And these guys said, we're not going to do that. So they wrote their terms on the blank sheet of paper, thinking about what would be reasonable, thoughtful terms to have. And now, of course, eventually they had lawyers go over them, but they set up their hedge fund in a way uh, that is unusual in the sense that the, for the big things, they, they're skewed. I mean, they're, they're certainly like very customer friendly and, and the big things end up being um, you know they have low low management fees and they have incentive fees that are aligned and they, they have all sorts of things. But what's more, most interesting to me is that the fine print uh, tends to be biased in, in favor of their clients in ways that frankly the clients may not even be so aware of or may not even care that much. But for them it's a it's a question of principle. And they did one thing that was fascinating to me and that I, frankly I haven't seen anywhere else in the industry 
in the hedge fund side, I've seen this on, amongst mutual funds, but this idea of uh, what's often referred to as fulcrum fee, where, you know, so they, they keep a portion of their of, of the profits um, every year if they make gains. But if they made losses, they would actually return part of the losses from their own savings to their clients. And I, I thought that was fascinating. And that was, um, you know, that, that's, that's brave. It seems right because it's only symmetrical. And they did it for 20 years. And then there was a change in the tax code that prevented them from doing that. Uh, but this, so this is an example in the hedge fund industry, and, and there are all sorts of other anecdotes around them that that suggest that they they care about this. They don't do this for marketing, and in fact, uh, in fact, it took it took me five years to convince them to allow me to write about him because he's very self-effacing and, and discreet. Um, so, so that's an example. You know, I, I write about other folks like Jack Bogle, of course, and it's impossible not to write about Jack Bogle when you're talking about customer uh, uh, service and, and delivering value to the customers. And in some ways, um, and J- Jack Bogle had the, uh, the uh, enormous privilege of getting to know because he was uh, uh, in some ways an anchor to the seminar, the ethics and finance seminar for, for seven years, he, he came and, and, and participated. And, um, and, in, and he is, he towers above uh, just about anyone else in terms of the impact of, uh, of, the, of the work that he's done. And uh, the only challenge with him in some ways is that it's hard to emulate him because he's, uh, I mean, he, like his, uh, his impact has been so great. And also, frankly, because he's, uh, he's, a, little, you know, he's a little different. I mean, he set up his firm as a, as a mutual, as a not-for-profit. And that's, you know, and in some ways that's very extreme. Not everyone will know, most will know, but uh, just for the minority that might not, uh, Jack Bogle is the founder of Vanguard, passed away maybe two or three years ago uh, after uh, having created Vanguard. You you do have an anecdote at the end of that section about a whistleblower who, at great personal risk, informed the government of some shenanigans, but then uh, declined to accept the the whole nature of a whistleblower to incentivize people to come forward, but the incentive is monetary. And tell that story because that that is counter to what one would normally expect, even in the moral framework set up by the legislation. Yeah. They did not foresee somebody reacting negatively to the incentive to the whole system. That's that's I think a telling story. Yes, and so I I explored um, the group of whistleblowers on Wall Street as an extreme version of virtue and finance, and in some ways they're they're almost uh, in a category of their own relative to any other role models in the book, simply because they're the only ones where you could look at them and say, hmm, that's you know what they did is could be described as heroic in some instances, simply because in order to uh, uh, address uh, some fundamental issue that was taking place at their firm, they were willing to put their not only their job but their livelihood and reputation on the line. And it's well known that whistleblowers typically lose their jobs, but also are are essentially unemployable after they do this. And so, so I have an enormous amount of respect for them. Now, after the global financial crisis and Dot Frank. The SEC created a new program 
which uh, allows whistleblowers uh, to uh, share in some of the uh, fines that the SEC might might uh, might get from uh, from a firm that that's been caught and that's been proven to have acted fraudulently. And and so of course I mean it creates a, a lot of uh, incentives for whistleblowers to come forth. And now when you're looking at it purely from a moral perspective, it becomes a little harder to tell the story because you, you don't know. Like you don't know for sure to what extent they were driven by really uh, wanting to to address the fraud versus there was an enormous incentive because uh, in a lot of these instances, they're making millions and millions of dollars. And I shouldn't overstate it because it's not like there are that many that have benefited from it, but it's still, there's this enormous incentive that uh, could allow them to make a lot more money than they would have uh, in the normal course of their careers. Eric Benartzi is different. And I was absolutely fascinated by, by his case because he, so he's someone that um, transferred to a Deutsche Bank, I think in, in the early 2010s. And he found uh, that they were mismarking internally some of their, uh, their derivatives and had done so for some time uh, in, in a way that was uh, well understood by them. And he tried to uh, address this internally, was not able to. He escalated it and, uh, and eventually it, it took a turn for the worse and, and he, he left and he, he brought the SEC in. And eventually, the yes, he found that um, that Deutsche Bank was guilty, and they uh, um, they charged uh, they charged them for millions and millions of dollars. And he ended up being um, uh, like being able to to get eligible uh, eligible, eligible for under, yeah eligible for under the terms of the prosecution under the terms of the legislation. Exactly, like he was eligible uh, for for multiple uh, millions of dollars, and I think. By the time uh, this came about, uh, he, if you had separated the amount that uh, was going to go to his estranged wife, it was about three and a half million dollars uh, going to him. And, and he decided to turn it down. And he thought it wasn't right because this was money that was really shareholders capital. And it was really a question of principle. Now, when you look at this, you're, you're skeptical. Right. There's got to be something else going on because, uh, you know, certainly, I mean, my focus in the book is about uh, folks who did not grab what they could when they could. But this is more extreme. This is really money that was uh, given to him and that he he really actively refused. And so, you know, I, I was wondering to what extent, like, is this someone who is wealthy enough that this would make a difference or and uh and all the indications are not that that's not the case and that in fact um he had to withdraw his kids from uh, private schools at some point after he lost his job and he had some challenges i think um um and and finding a new job and and he moved to israel so he's he's the real deal and and i thought it was remarkable uh to find people like this and just because I, it's so unusual. Yeah, and again, each of your stories and each of this, the categories really is running up against the assumption in classical economics 
University of Chicago School, not to name names, but let's name names, profit maximization and uh, shareholder maximization and profit maximization. And, And what's interesting, I think, for the readers will be that there are so many of these stories, uh, whether uh, it's uh, whether it's customers first or the other categories. That this is not an uncommon. It's a, not a everyday occurrence, but it is not an uncommon occurrence where you run into people who are willing to really define profit maximization in a somewhat different, broader uh, term. In, in social wealth creation, do you want to uh, you know call out one or two? Uh, yes, and uh, best examples. Yeah, and maybe let me illustrate a bad example of this to, to make clear uh, what, what I'm talking about here. And and I think an extreme example of uh, serving your customer well, but by extracting value from other stakeholders um, is the example of JP Morgan uh, in, the, in the 90s and, or Goldman Sachs in the early 2000s, uh, where JP Morgan was serving the government of Italy and uh, and helping them obfuscate their level of debt uh, or the level of sovereign debt that they were reporting to the European Union. And Goldman Sachs did something similar with Greece. And so this is a, an example of a situation where uh, both JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs would have been paid in, uh, a lot of money uh, for for good reasons, in a sense, because this is exactly why you would hire ultra-sophisticated firms like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, because they have this very unique skill set that uh, allows them to have incredible insight. Well, first, I mean, the finance skills to be able to see through this, but also like the insights to really understand how regulations work and, and the inner workings of EU uh, guidelines and so on, and and they successfully uh, were able to obfuscate the level of debt. Now, when you step back, however, it's hard to not see this as a situation where they did this by extracting value from the rest of society, because now they've uh, allowed this to go unnoticed, and um, and of course we know. You know, down the road, we had the Eurozone crisis in 2011, 2012, because of uh, uh, tremendous levels of debt, uh, sovereign debt that were unsustainable. Of course, that's not, you know, I, I don't want to ascribe um, the blame on these banks. And But it, it's um, it's an example. Of, go, go ahead. Feel free. The rest of us do it anyhow. <laughs> and, and, and also, I, you know, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan are, are proxies for all the other banks. And, I, uh, I, I don't mean to uh, focus on them, but th- that, that would be the example. So now on the other side, you have all sorts of people that are going the other way. And, and I write about Frederick Samama, who uh, I've actually known uh, very well for the last 15, 20 years. And he has been a um, manager at Omundi, uh, which is now the largest asset manager in Europe. And, and sometime in the mid to late 2000s, he had a view that um, the forces of commercial finance could be deployed to both service clients and help address climate change. And at a time when it was, it was not a particularly hot topic. And so he started convening uh, almost on his own long-term investors and academics to start thinking about like what are the tools that we could use how can we 
used these commercial forces in the right direction. And eventually this led to him and in partnership with Patrick Bolton, who's a, who's an academic at Columbia Business School, to convince the like the first important pension fund manager uh, who was willing to embed uh, ESG factors in his investments. And that was Matt Anderson, uh, who at that time uh, managed AP4, which is one of the Swedish pension funds. And, and eventually that paved the way. So they were one of the pioneers for the development of what is now an enormous trend towards embedding ESG factors in uh, in investments, and and what what was interesting to me is that you could look at this in hindsight as well. You know, maybe this was just a commercial interest, but the reality is, being very close to him when it happened, it was completely unfashionable to go in that direction back then, and and in fact, it was a you know I, at that time I, I think I, I certainly saw it as a career limiting move. But yet he he persevered and ended up being one of the many pioneers in in what is now like an enormous trend for for the good I think. So the uh, ESG is everywhere. I as a asset manager myself, I'm just uh, overwhelmed with the amount of information I'm presented with and expectations. Appreciating what the first mover might have done, I have to say the pendulum has sprung swung in the other direction. Now there's very few emails um, or conversations which now aren't about ESG. The yeah. pendulum may have, have gone a little bit uh, too far, but it, it'll yeah, settle and, and over time. I, yeah, and I, I think it's reasonable to ask whether it's going too fast and whether we're in in an ESG bubble at this stage. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not supposed to say that, but I'm glad you did. What one of the most interesting and sort of personal chapters is on humanistic leadership because it's about individuals within the firms taking a we'll call it the McKinsey view though that's also a multifaceted term with many many meanings meanings and uh, also you know uh, again the pendulum has swung from Goldman Sachs having a certain type of leadership to Goldman Sachs having a reputation for a different type of of personnel. But prior to or when Goldman Sachs was a partnership, it had some extremely interesting people, and you you write about them, and uh, they they read as if they're coming out of a history book because one wonders how many people like them are you know operating today, and you, you've highlighted them, but uh, you know it's it's hard yeah. to to live up to the standards of these almost Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart like figures running it's about the local bank and it's a wonderful life you just it's i don't i have to say i don't see too many people like that except yeah in frank capra movies yeah no you're right and i, I think um there, there there were many of them uh, the one I, I ended up focusing on the most is john whitehead who was the co-senior partner at goldman sachs from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s and um, and I also had the enormous privilege of getting to know him. He was pretty involved in the seminar for about three years before he, he passed away. He and he was really um, the the like in some ways he identified with Goldman Sachs's culture and values, and he is the one who wrote the initial um, twelve business principles uh, that over time I think became fourteen business principles. But with the first one being 
you should always serve your your customers' interests uh, or prioritize your customers' interests. And they they really believed it uh, based on all my interviews with him and other uh, folks from that era. And and what's interesting is to look at specific decisions that they made at the time that uh, would have come across as uncommercial. And uh, and you know they were uncommercial in the short term. They were uh, you could look at them and and also make the argument that they were very commercial if you had a very long term view. I believe and, one of the phrases, and I forget whose it is, but uh, long term, extremely greedy. But it, you have to pause yes. and think about that. In order to be successfully greedy long term, it's very very different, almost diametrically opposed to being successfully greedy short term. Uh, but you have to yes. think about that first. Yeah, yeah, and and it, you know one one of the fascinating uh, civil wars that took place at Goldman Sachs, and and I I've never worked there, uh, but I've certainly interviewed a lot of people that have, and, and there's been an enormous amount written about them, was the agonizing, I think, internal debates that they had as to whether they should go public or not. And uh, and there were multiple votes that were taken, uh, that were all turned, where they turned down that option, the partnership turned down that option, until eventually they, uh, they decided to go public in 1998. Uh, John Whitehead uh, was one of the people that resisted that, but again, you know, the reality is that it would have been hard, and I think he was very mindful of the fact that uh, ultimately, they, if they were going to try to remain the preeminent uh, global investment bank or a preeminent uh, global investment banks, in order to compete, they needed the capital. And uh, and had to go public. Yeah, it's we're probably worth mentioning what you just said from a technical perspective. That the partnership structure, uh, in addition to having different liability perspectives or, or uh, framework, but a, a publicly traded company just has a much easier time to raise money to grow their business than a partnership. A partnership requires the partners to put in additional capital if they want to buy something or. Uh, uh, engage in a, a new project, whereas for uh, publicly traded companies, the mechanisms of uh, additional shares, uh, share prices going up, et cetera, makes it much easier for the companies to raise capital to expand. And as you point out, the competitive dynamic when the other investment bank, former partnership, but now an investment bank that's publicly traded, has access to much more capital than you do, it's going to be harder to, to keep up with them. So that yeah. that's why this you know the shift occurred kind of the relentless growth, but uh, it just, again, so that people understand the difference between a, a partnership and a publicly traded entity. Yeah. And, and, you know, once your competitor goes public, it's very, very hard to make the decision not to. And there are very few firms that have made that decision. You know, I mean, I can think of only a few, like Brown Brothers Harriman is one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in the humanistic leadership category, there are some other examples. It's not just uh, John yes. Whitehead, but uh, uh, also the the structural way that McKinsey operates uh, its its partnership. It is not publicly traded, uh, and the the real focus on human resources and human capital that that company has. And clearly, you link it to their their success. And there are many many other stories about that, but in effect, you know, investing your people, investing your people, and finally, and third, investing your people is right. uh, one of the, the clear conclusions. And then those people who are successful, shall we say, on Wall Street, you want to highlight they go beyond Wall Street and 
and uh, are engaged in activities outside of Wall Street citizenship that is is worth noting. It doesn't involve a lot of golf clubs and uh, fancy things. It's there are people out there trying to to make the world a better place, having accumulated significant capital on Wall Street, and so there there are interesting stories there as well. Yes, and you know John Whitehead is a perfect example of someone that uh, left uh, Goldman Sachs to become first undersecretary of of, uh, of state, um, uh, and um, and had an incredible career as a public servant. Um, I mean, he he ended up chairing so many not for profit uh, organizations. Uh, he he was the head of the nine eleven commission. And, and so had an incredible career after this. Uh, but I think what, what's interesting is that it's not only that model that, that you can find, right? It's not only, I, I also write about Robert Lovett, who was um, one of the partners at Brown Brothers Harriman back when Brown Brothers Harriman was, was the preeminent firm uh, and, and went on to become a, a very distinguished uh, public servant uh, under FDR, but there's also the model of uh, Erin Goddard. Erin is, um, you know, I met her, or I, I connected with her, she was 28. She had been an accountant at, um, at Ernst & Young in Toronto, and after five years, took a summer off to go to Rwanda to volunteer. And she came back from Rwanda with this uh, insight that in a developing economy, the lack of accounting skill has just profound implications on the productivity of their corporate sector because um, so they have a staggeringly low number of CPAs and accountants. And the net result of that is that many of their firms and not-for-profits are, are run in a loosey-goosey way because nobody really knows what the numbers yeah. are. And so she thought, well, this is this is a place where I can make a real difference. And so she went back and she created uh, an accounting institute. And it took some years to get it right. But eventually she and one of her partners actually from uh, her colleagues from uh, E&Y in, in Toronto went there and they, they lived there. And, and now it's at the point where, and so this has been running for, for four years or so, and she has cohorts of 100 students who are on um, a, um, a four-month program that makes them job-ready as accountants. And in doing so, she, she addresses two things. One is she, she enables the development of a skill set that is incredibly helpful. I mean, the, the impact that that skill set has is probably disproportionate. And secondly, she's also creating a path to towards uh, middle class for for a subset of students. And so, um, th- I thought her her profile was very interesting because it's the opposite of John Whitehead, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, and and you and there are a lot of examples in between, uh, but the I I th- found. Uh, what I thought were really interesting stories of ways in which finance professionals use their skill set for uh, the collective interest outside of their main occupation. 
So having, having done this, having taught at Princeton for 12 years, having distilled these uh, investigations and conversations down into four pretty absorbable categories with uh, nicely told stories, the question I have to ask is, uh, how successful has it been? What has been the, the impact of trying to communicate this to undergraduates and graduate students? Uh, and when many of them I'm prepared to assert are come into your class uh, substantially with the goal of profit maximization, near-term profit maximization, and uh, you know, uh, keen on getting to Goldman Sachs and as quickly as possible, that you, you've taken on quite a big challenge now that you, you've distilled this into a book. But what has been the takeaway with your effort, I'm not going to say single-handedly, but your effort to persuade the students going in, hey, pause, think, consider uh, how you're approaching this endeavor. Have you had enough time and examples of your students to come back to you and say, hey, that made sense, or no, that just doesn't survive the first week of training at Goldman Sachs? Yes. Well, I mean, a few things. One is uh, my students tend to be self-selected because uh, it's um, uh, it's a course on the ethics and finance. And, so it's an elective, uh, effectively? It's, it, yeah, it's an elective. And so I, I think uh, a lot of my students are, are interested in finance and in having positive impacts in society. So there's a predisposition there. But now this being said, I would, my assumption is that the younger generation is actually more predisposed to have that approach. Uh, and I may be wrong uh, because I, I realize I have biased sample and, um, but, but also based on what I read and, and what I see as, a, as an investment professional, my sense is that that younger generation is more predisposed to it. And I think it's because they were formed by the global financial crisis. And my sense is that if, you know, in the, in the 90s and the 2000s, a lot of uh, our perspective on finance was that finance is a force for good and more finance is better. And in fact, when you look at the academic research, starting in the early 1990s, a lot of it in that field was about to try and understand the positive spillover effects of finance on, on the economy and society. And that was great. And, and frankly, that's one of the reasons that drew me to finance was to try to understand this better and to try to implement that. But I think after the global financial crisis, there's been a lot of soul searching because, of course, uh, this notion that more finance is better uh, seemed to have been shattered. And now there's this sense of, well, maybe that's not the case. And maybe we need to be more thoughtful about how to, how to work in finance and how to use finance. And, and for sure, finance is a force for good, but uh, not all finance is, is a force for good. And, and there are ways in which its impact on society can be mitigated and, and uh, improved. And so I, I've been generally positively uh, I would say, like, I, I've, I've generally been, I wouldn't say surprised, but I've, um, I, you know, I see my students, I generally stay in touch with my students over the years, and I, I typically do Zoom sessions with them every year and invite them to come back. And a lot of them are, seem very thoughtful, whether it's in the, from this class or I teach another class on Asian capital markets. 
and economies and capital markets that has nothing to do with ethics. Uh, but I, I do feel that the, this new generation is a little different. And I, you know, I, I hope I'm right. And this book is meant to provide, uh, it's meant to be a very modest contribution to the debate and help them provide a little bit of guidance as to what it would look like to be virtuous, but being completely realistic uh, about the fact that behavior is primarily driven by incentives. And also the fact that uh, that in and of itself doesn't uh, create a comprehensive solution to the issues that we face as an industry. It's only part of the solution. And its, its premise is that a lot of people in finance are well-meaning, but not particularly aware of their impact. Well, this we can take as a, a kind of a step in the right direction, a partial step, partial solution for for that problem. We're an industry that we all have to acknowledge has a has a bad rap, but again, one step at a time to rectifying that one person at a time, and that's to some extent what what your work is is doing is showing that you know these individuals uh, have made a difference, and if you gather them together in a, in a coherent narrative, it it may well it, and hopefully will be compelling to people entering the the profession and people already in in the profession. JC Deswan, uh, thank you so much uh, f- for being on the show. The book is Seeking Virtue in Finance, Contributing to Society in a, a Conflicted Industry. It just came out from Cambridge University Press. I encourage not only students of finance, but practitioners to take a look at it and uh, pause and think about it. It, it is a, a refreshing take on indeed a, a conflicted industry. JC, thank you so much again for being on the show. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed this.